It's episode 28, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, and today we're talking about snakes, which is the best thing to talk about, I think. Uh, I'm Tom Major, and joining me is my co-host Ben Marshall, same as always, and uh, yeah, today's episode we are talking about indigo snakes. Yes, trimarchron, right? Yes, indeed. Derived from the Greek, meaning the beginning bit, drymos, from oak coppice or forest, and arkos, meaning commander or chief. So it's like chief of the woodland. Wow, let's get into some sort of etymology. I didn't know that. Yeah. Chief of the woodland. Pretty awesome, huh? Chief, Chief of the woodland, although they are tolerant of diverse suite of habitats. Yes. But um, <laughs> they don't rule the other habitats, whereas they no, do no, rule only... the oak woodlands. Uh, okay, so they preside over the woodland and then they sort of do little forays into the <laughs> savannah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other things rule the rule the roost and the savannah. Um, yeah, so we got a couple of papers lined up about, well, specifically the eastern indigo, indigo snake, Drymarchon cooperi. Mm. Um, yeah. It should be cool. I mean, these snakes are pretty badass, aren't they? All things considered. They are stunning snakes. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, they're just gigantic. I couldn't... It's always hard to actually get, like, an accurate measure of how long they get. But they get, like, ten feet or bigger, don't they? Mm. They're not small. I don't know. They're certainly the largest snake that can be found in parts of the southern US, if you exclude large exotic species that perhaps shouldn't be there slash definitely shouldn't be there <laughs> yes yeah because they, they i mean yeah they'd be longer they're probably the longest they must be the biggest snake in the u.s right they're probably not the heaviest diamondbacks would be heavier eastern diamondbacks would be heavier anyway this is just c- conjecture i don't know the answer to that question so i'll stop saying it so anyway uh yeah they're mostly black which makes them just look super cool they're really shiny and they have a red or a tan face and they have like really big scales on their heads, which gives them quite a unique appearance. Not dissimilar to King Cobra in head scalation. Well, they are very dissimilar, but like just in terms of the fact that there's giant big scales that make them look quite recognisable. Hmm. Distinctive. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and in the genus Drymarchon, there's five species. We can say that with relative confidence, I think. Um, um, and Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I... I followed up um, one of one of the papers we'll be talking about says that there are five, or at least one of the papers I brought up said there were five, and pointed towards a Worcester et al. 2001 paper to back that up. And that paper seemed to be talking more about different species in Venezuela and places like that. And I didn't see a definitive list of five species in that paper, but there were enough names and mentions to make sure to to be five i think yeah 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 i think we can say that and um yeah so as a genus drymarchon is found in north central and south america um yeah as you just said there's some species i can't remember what species it is there's one that goes all the way down to argentina um yeah drymarchon corai Corre is the one which goes all the way down to Argentina. Yes, uh, but wasn't the that the one tail. that a whole bunch were grouped into at one point? 
quite possibly. I yeah, don't know. I think so. You've been... I think that's what people yeah. were saying that it was a it, it covered even more than it does now at various points. That's the one with the yellow tail. It's quite a cool looking snake. Another gigantic colubrid. Uh, but yeah, so this should we start off? Should we start off the first paper? Should we introduce it and then we'll carry on with the indigo snake stuff? Got any other sort of general indigo? I don't have any more general indigo stuff. No, not really. No. Okay, cool. Well, um, yeah, the first paper we've got is well, it's actually important to say first of all, it's not actually a paper yet. I mean, it's, it's written, you know, presumably it's on paper. It's on paper somewhere, but um, yeah, it's not been peer reviewed. It's a preprint, so it's on bio archive. Uh, you can read it freely, but yeah, it hasn't gone through peer review so you got to kind of bear that in mind when you talk about its findings and stuff like but um lots of sort of renowned herpetologists have come out and said various supportive things about this paper so i think it's been quite quite well received and there's no like negative comments on the website where it's hosted so yeah but that is one downside to the bioarchive preprint stuff is while it's a fantastic idea in concept a lot of papers do go by without any sort of active engagement. Um, even one that's quite a big deal like this one. So, yeah, it, I, it I was... is a solution to the peer review problem. Is it's like, oh yeah, it's a cool idea. I'd like to see it happen. Whether the engagement is there yet, uh, well, it doesn't look like it. Basically, it, a lot of potential. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised to see no comments on this one. You'd think if there was going to be one which would rally sort of a healthy debate, it would be this. But I guess people are probably having their discussions elsewhere. Absolutely, yeah. Or, you know, when it's been reported on somewhere else and that's where discussions are happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the paper is... Or in fact, somewhere like this. <laughs> well, yeah, there we go. We're discussing it here. Wow, we're a platform. Whoa. Okay, anyway, so it's by Falter, Bowder, Spear, Stevenson, Hoffman, Oakes, Jenkins, Steen, and Gaia, 2018. Phylogenetic, population genetic, and morphological analyses reveal evidence for one species of eastern indigo snake, dry mark on Cooperi. And as I said, preprint in bioarchive. Yeah. So, basically, this is a. Um, what's, what's the word? What's the word for... Rebuttal. Mm, not quite, no, this is a different word. Contradictory results paper. Yeah? Okay, yeah. Isn't that the yeah, term okay. that's... Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Rebuttal is sort of like more sort of defensive, isn't it? This is kind of like... Yeah, this is... this is We've, we've done the similar sort of thing to previous papers and we've come out with opposite results. Yeah. And that's how I read this paper too, is I deliberately didn't read it and went and read the other two papers first that they were countering, essentially. Because I thought if I read the this one first, it would end up colouring my judgement of the previous ones. Because I'll be thinking of all the sort of things they pick up as being limitations. Yeah, and might not give me the ideas. first one as much benefit as perhaps it should. That's very wise. I wish I'd thought had the foresight to do that, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so the, so there's two papers they sort of are re-examining, basically, uh, both by Crusco et al., both in 2017, one in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution and the other in Zootaxa. Um, do we want to jump into 
Doves, just to give you a sort of background on what's going on here. Yeah, definitely. So, we've mentioned Eastern Indigos. That's the real subject of study here. And in particular, ones that exist in Florida, because Florida's had a crazy up and down history of sea level changes and all sorts of uh, geological shifts over the last I don't know, 65 million years or whatever. All sort of driven by, uh, what do you call them? Milankovitch cycles, the uh, shifts in Earth orbit. Just slight changes, changing climate and things like that over three different cycles. So you've had these cycles of sea level change. And so it makes a very interesting place to start looking at species and whether they've sort of separated or not because of these changes. And that's the sort of background context of these guys that are basically examining whether your eastern indigo, Drymarchon cooperi, is one species or multiple species which are sort of existing in different parts of Florida and uh, the Atlantic coast and mainland US. And it's also a sort of push against what, going back to that Worcester paper, they mention the inertia species concept, which is not not a term that I'd come across before, which is quite a nice one, where basically species remain together and lumped out of lack of study and convenience, basically. Hmm. And, you know, we're still having a lot of this ongoing work to break down sort of these big species complexes because no one's really done it before and it's just been left alone because it takes a lot of effort to investigate these things. So this, this Chroscope paper was part of this push to, hey, let's check out these things and make sure that they are still one species sort of stuff, which is commendable. Um, so that's exactly what they did. They grabbed 72 eastern indigos, sequenced mm, two mitochondrial DNA fragments and one nuclear and also do a little bit of sampling of eastern indigos as outgroups basically comparing eastern to sorry western which is dry mark on Bellinustrus and well come up with some quite interesting results which I'm quite happy to go into if you don't want to jump in there and say something on it no, mate, crack on, crack on. So basically what they found was that the eastern and western species separated around six million years ago. But then also that um, Cooperi possibly split into two different lineages around two million years ago. And what you had was a sort of Atlantic coast uh, lineage, sort of West Georgia and down the coast of uh, east coast of Florida, and then a Gulf Coast lineage that was along the bottom of Florida into the Panhandle and along that way. Um, and it just it, it was put into the context of the sea level rises and things. It looked like the split occurred when sea levels were higher, and perhaps suggesting that one lineage was trapped on islands, like the Gulf lineage was trapped on. Florida, when it's sort of more separate from the mainland, diverged at that time, and then now with sea levels slightly lower, 
or 22 meters lower. They're now back in contact, but they're still remaining uh, distinct in terms of genetics. Yeah, and they sort of used that, didn't they, to describe this new species, which they called Drymarchon culpobacillus. Yeah, which is the second paper, which is their, their Zootaxa paper. Yeah. Just a note on the name there. Basically it's means really cool. Golf King, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> so it's King of the Woods, King of the Golf. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest snake that can be natively found there. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, they've got these they're saying there's these two distinct lineages. And the uh species description paper in Zootaxa is basically a second paper to support the first by looking into the morphological differences between the two lineages, doing some differences on scale counts and things like that. And basically, it looked like they showed that the golf species lineage has shorter, shallower heads and a slight difference in infralabial and temporal scales. And basically... Showed that they could predict um, which lineage a snake would belong to just off those morphological characters. And furthermore, there looked to be a hybrid zone along where these two met of sort of intermediate snakes, which would be, if you can identify a hybrid zone and they're sort of distinct beyond that, that's pretty. That's, it's, additional supportive evidence for two separate species if there is a distinct oh, I don't know even that seems a bit odd now I'm talking about it Cause... what's that the, the the fact that you can have an intermediary zone as a yeah. indicator that there's two species yeah because you could just have an intermediary zone between two phenotypes or, or colorations yeah. or behaviours or anything like that that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're separate enough to be species no. but they were saying that the ones that were more difficult to identify were in a potential hybrid zone yeah um i don't know yeah i mean it's it is well documented that there are these hybrid zones between snake species so well i was just thinking i went back and had a look at the grass snake paper we discussed a couple of episodes ago and oh, that yeah. you had a very sharp hybrid zone which was where there were, you know, was a distinct species, and then that very broad general hybrid zone when they were still mixing and there was a lot of gene flow. So, mm. in that sense, if you've got a very short, sharp hybrid zone, that might be more suggestive of species separation because there isn't much long-range gene flow. The genes aren't getting very far because perhaps hybrids aren't particularly viable. Yeah, I guess it also depends on the scale that you're looking at, doesn't it? Like, if if it's a really, really, really widespread, like if the two species sort of geographic ranges at their sort of distance limit at their furthest point are really far away, then you might expect that there's going to be a slightly bigger mixing area in the middle. Mm. Whereas if whereas if I would say in this case, they're sort of relatively, are they relatively close together? Four is quite big. But anyway, I guess if they're closer together than you would, and the, the sort of species ranges are smaller, then for some reason it would seem to me that you might expect a, a smaller mixing zone. But I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems seems like there's some logic to that statement, but maybe not. I don't know. But then I guess yeah, maybe you could just have a massive hybrid zone and then two relatively small actual like clearly delimited species on the on the peripheries. But then that would be confusing and it'd be weird. Well, you definitely think be less likely. Yeah. Sorry, we'll get back into the hybrid zone with the sort of <laughs> contrary points of the uh, yeah paper. exactly yeah. So, so are we ready to start criticizing them? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the only sort of problem with picking this as a thing to do. Is it? It's going to be a little bit of a negative um, episode in that respect. Yeah. But to be honest, yeah. a lot of the a lot of the criticism comes from sort of methodological issues, which we're not best placed to really dig into and make some sort of value judgment on ourselves. No, yeah, I definitely felt like that reading about the criticisms of the genetic work that had been undertaken. Yeah, because I was I'm, just kind of like, well, I'd have taken the original author's word for it, and now I'm going to take your word for yeah. it as well. <laughs> That's why I wanted to read them in the in the right order, because really, the both the Crisco papers I would have read and not, you know, I just don't know enough about the molecular stuff to be able to to have picked that stuff up. And what's nice about the Crisco one is it does provide. Um, a sort of biogeographical rationale behind the stuff they find. Yes. And, yeah. You know, we have gone through papers that have done very similar things, or at least on the surface look like very similar things, and might still be. I don't know how yeah, right those well, papers are. But it was. I mean, didn't we have we had a discussion, didn't we, about whether we should do those papers the crisco papers but then there was this controversy i do think I've, i think i remember us talking about that and this kind of just being like oh, let's leave it alone maybe maybe but, maybe um, there was but there is i think there's definitely an irony in the fact that uh we're basically do it discussing a preprint which hasn't been peer-reviewed criticizing stuff that has been peer-reviewed <laughs> criticizing stuff that has been peer-reviewed but apparently not peer-reviewed particularly well because things got through which maybe according to these authors shouldn't have mm. um so yeah it's kind of a bit of an ironic one where it's like a bit of a just soup of mystery but i think um although yeah yeah so both these papers were out when the crisco ones were 2016 i was saying 2017 sorry i'll forgive you ben well <laughs> just so people know what they're looking for if they want to read i can't speak i can't speak for the listeners <laughs> um but yeah so yeah let's get into the uh the Falter et al. paper where they sort of just, um, well, yeah. I mean, the paper's written in a very non-confrontational way. It's literally just like, here's some things which we perceive to be wrong and then here's how we evidence why we think that's wrong with some new analysis. Yeah, well, it's new analysis and also new original data. Data. It's not yes, just a reanalysis do. of the cross-call data. Yeah, so they did brand new mitochondrial DNA molecular analysis Um they also reviewed the genetic evidence which Chris Gertel presented, and then they also did a new morphological analysis based on new data they collected from 125 eastern indigo snakes, mm. which represented snakes from both uh, populations, both regions. Um, yeah, and they did that all sort of fresh based on the characters which were supposed to be delimiting the species according to Crisco et al. Mm. 
and then sort of reassessed it whether it could be used as a predictor of lineage. Yes, yes. Yeah. They basically did sort of a similar thing again uh, and, and to see if they got the same results, which, as it turned out, they didn't. Not entirely, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, should we start off with uh, the genetics-y bit? Yeah. Yeah? So one of their... I mean, their main criticism, uh, as far as I could see, was that Crisco et al. combined their mitochondrial DNA and their nuclear marker that they used. Um ordinarily those things are kind of looked at separately and you kind of use the nuclear marker as a sort of litmus test for how reliable your mitochondrial dna results are yeah or, or you, you build two two different results mm. and have a you know, and you be hope able to they, compare them to see if there are incongruities yeah. yeah yeah and and if there are incongruous things it suggests that well, often, I think the impression I got was that often uh, mitochondrial DNA can be sort of like a bit, it, it can suggest differences where perhaps they aren't as dramatic as it seems. When then when you do nuclear stuff, it becomes clear that actually, you know, there was, there's more to the story. And one of the reasons for that can be that mitochondrial DNA is inherited from female parents and females move around and behave differently than males. So if male movements for example and male dispersal were responsible for a lot of gene flow you might miss that looking at mitochondrial dna alone yeah that's the whole point is if you look in just the way it was presented was like it was taking into account nuclear and mitochondrial but because mitochondria also has a faster mutation rate and stuff you're actually being shown a tree that was very much mitochondrial based and therefore subject to all the issues with just doing phylogenetic work on mitochondrial dna as yes. far as i understand yeah. it yeah yeah man so same. I was you're like, looking oh. at one small portion of dna but presenting it like it's more yeah 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 and um so yeah and also on the con on the um on the topic of the hybrid zones that you were just discussing um they talked about that and they noticed that there was a hybrid zone, but there was actually, oh, what am I saying? Yeah, but there was actually um, individuals that sort of had genetic sort of structure that you would expect to be in the hybrid zone, but they were actually really far away from the contact zone in some cases. So there's sort of this indication that the so-called contact zone isn't necessarily confined to the contact zone which would suggest that yeah it's a much wider mixing and a much wider gene flow and a more general gene flow as opposed to the meeting of two previously separated uh species there's much much ready more ready uh gene flow between the two yeah 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 and then the other last thing they did i said was um they got hold of 125 new specimens and measured their scale, some of their head scalation and sort of the, the length and width of the heads and things like that. And they didn't find the same pattern of difference that the Chris Goetel paper did. Um, yeah, they found that it was way more inconsistent than Chris Goetel had discovered. Yeah, one of the things that they sort of mentioned that might have caused that is that the um, 
the snakes that were measured to generate the sort of a, a sort of predictive model, like okay, these ones have this sort of morphological characteristic, were also used to verify those results. So basically, they then looked at everything and see if they could categorize everything. And obviously, the ones that they used to generate the rules to categorize them worked just fine. So that probably inflated their overall result at the end, which is yeah probably explaining why when these guys did it, it didn't it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, and there's differences between sort of like live snakes and preserved snakes in how yeah. their head sits because. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I've recently taken photos of live snakes and dead snakes. And yeah, they're all floppy when they're dead and their mouth hangs open and they do weird stuff. So it, that's one possible way they suggest that maybe the uh, the uh, photos, these sort of scale counts weren't as accurate as they could be or not necessarily scale counts, but particularly the head depth and head width, head width and things like that. Yeah, they're notoriously hard to measure, these snakes. You would have thought something yeah, they with are. no limbs is easy, but it isn't. <laughs> They're just a pipe. <laughs> Ooh, wiggly and awkward. And yeah. then, well we um we put the uh Escalapian snakes on a um we hold them on a photocopier and then photocopy their underside and then measure that because it's so much easier than trying to measure a wriggly snake. Put a snake in a photocopier. Mm, yeah. That... Well you don't shut the photocopier, that would be unkind. You just hold the snake <laughs> I just there. love the uh <laughs> <laughs> oh. Got all this like fancy technology they have to do all these other studies and stuff. But really, when it comes down to it, when you want to get some good ecological data, you need a photocopier and a piece of string. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, yeah, I was saying to my friend Chris that, they, well, I think I posted on Twitter about it, and she was saying that they take like a portable scanner out in the field when they study animals and do the same thing because it's just so much easier. Yeah. And you, and then also you get a really nice little piece of paper that you can keep forever. And it's consistent because <laughs> you've got contact on the on the glass. It's you don't have to worry about sort of focal lengths and all that with cameras and exposure. It's all the same. Exactly. No, it's, exactly. It's a yeah. smart solution. <laughs> yeah, it's very <blooming> handy. <laughs> It's easier if you can anaesthetize a snake and then measure it, but in our case, that's not possible. So well, and if you can avoid anaesthetization, it's usually better to not. Yeah, it would be quite, yeah, I guess, yeah, there are elements which would be a lot easier with an anaesthetized snake. But, you know, it's, you know, you've got to try and do these little innovations as basic as they seem. <laughs> yeah, so... I was just going to also mention there were sort of issues with what scale was being even measured. There was yeah. some sort of argument over which one was the seventh infilabrial and all, all sorts of like little issues and which temporal scale was being used. To... It was all just... I don't know. It, it's... I find it hard to believe that these things were... Def you know, they definitely weren't done deliberately. No way. And no. I also find it hard to believe that it was done particularly slapdash it almost it mostly strikes me as just a problem with the actual wording of the paper to make these things clearer than anything else but i don't know well who knows who knows yeah certainly yeah you don't want to start bashing the way people did stuff because you weren't there but yeah. no well unless it unless it's really bad i'm sure there are cases where that's times where that's the case but yeah, I don't. I definitely wouldn't feel qualified to make an assertion like that. But it's just sort of interesting that almost at so many turns there were just not not 
it feels like some of these things could have been avoided if it was just explained differently. Hmm. But um, it's certainly an interesting back and forth. Yeah. So, um, well, in terms of what they actually found when they did their own study, well, should we start off with uh, their sort of reanalysis of the Crisco et al. stuff? Yeah. Yeah, just... Yeah. Whatever you got, go for it. Uh, well, I haven't got a lot. I just They basically just found that the um, nuclear locus that they had used, which they had lumped in with their mitochondrial stuff, actually showed no variation across the population. So rather than it sort of being an independent measure of anything it just because it had just been lumped in all it did was like slightly reduce the variation that the mitochondrial dna showed yeah but then the, the differences in the mutation rate sort of and also using more mitochondrial loci i guess would have flattened out any differences that were there anyway right yeah yeah and um yeah so they also uh did their own uh, mitochondrial one didn't they and they found that there wasn't really any variation or nothing sort of s- s- could justify different species no it sort of looks like um they were saying that with mitochondrial stuff just based on mitochondrial stuff you tend to have a sort of split in the population that looks <laughs> basically like what they found and how uh, members are going to be more closely related to members closer to each other anyway. So you do tend to just, by virtue of location, get slight lumping. Um, So it's almost like the mitochondrial pattern identified by Kruskal was like just an artefact of what happens with mitochondrial DNA over time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Or well, at least that's what they were saying. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's that's how I understood what they were saying anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and um as we said earlier, the morphological the morphological analysis also didn't show the same variation. Um and that's why they kind of sort of suggested that some of the Crisco stuff was a bit confused. Mm. Um yeah. Uh yeah, and they had some cool figures for you know, I mentioned earlier about how the males and females can move differently. Oh um, boy! See, this was yeah. this was the coolest bit for me because yeah, I've read a lot of these papers the <laughs> on all the all the big home range stuff, all the Bowder papers and the Hislop papers, and they're really good. And the one thing I want to bring up in all that is the Hislop et al. twenty fourteen one where they found a male to move over one thousand five hundred hectares. Which is just yeah. crazy, crazy huge. I think that's the biggest native snake home range in the world. It's certainly the biggest I've ever seen or read about. Yeah, I've seen. Yeah, I've definitely never seen anything like that. It's crazy. I know that and, the um, Burmese pythons in Florida can go over two thousand and stuff, but they're invasive and slightly insane. <laughs> they're busy, is what they are. Um, but yeah, two kilometer movements a day as well. It's crazy. Yeah. That that I find easier to believe. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but I just think any animal with no legs moving two kilometres a day deserves some kind of special recognition. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Chief of the oak woodland they are. Yeah, 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, like we said earlier, they're kind of used broad habitats too. They're not just woodland generalists, but um, they will go into disturbed areas. And I did want to just really cool snakes. Yeah, I did want to mention one thing before we carry on about the. There was a slight change in the number of dorsal temporal scales between the Gulf and Atlantic lineages with um, the Atlantic ones tending to have two and the Gulf ones tending to have three but this just seems to be like what I was saying right at the very beginning just seems to be a phenotypic difference and certainly not a full species sort of situation because it's one thing just having slight variation it's another thing being a different species because they don't yeah. seem to be genetically uh, separate, and they're certainly not reproductively isolated or anything along those lines. So there is some sort of difference no. here. And what they were sort of suggesting might have caused that, so I gave you the background of the Milankovitch cycles and the possible isolation, is what we could be looking at here is two populations of the same species separated for a little bit, slight divergence, but then there's a complete remixing of everything and they haven't been separated long enough to be to speciate but uh, there are two uh, populations and they're just mixing up very generally and, and quickly now because there is so much contemporary gene flow so they haven't separated but they are <laughs> there is still some sort of ongoing mixing so they tried to speciate but they failed well, almost, yeah, perhaps, or at least there's, <laughs> there's, there's still that biogeographical context that would make that seem quite likely, isn't there? Yeah. But there's no way that yeah, they're definitely. not, because we've got so much gene flow, there's, like that's not a separate species. No. No. Just a couple of papers to point people towards. Um, first one, this isn't the first time this sort of pattern's been seen in and around Florida. Apparently a similar sort of situation occurred with the um, cottonmouths, where in mitochondrial DNA suggested perhaps a separation, but then a subsequent paper by Strickland et al. in 2014 showed there was still quite high gene flow. So this isn't an un unprecedented thing to happen, whereas it looks like there may be species and then there isn't. Um... And the other paper I wanted to point people to was a Defraga et al. 2017 one, which is basically showing the differences in gene flow between um, ambush snakes and active foraging snakes, which plays directly into backing up how the big ranging movements of uh, indigos have allowed this, this big nuclear gene flow. And that was a wicked paper because you've just got really ambush, cool. non-ambush, and there it is in the genetics. Like you've you've got behavioural stuff being visible in genetic data, which I think is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and there were other examples, weren't there, where there's been like there was. Alligator snapping turtles were described as a different species. Um, That's what was sort of nice. Turned out to not be. Yeah, I was so sort of convinced by the biogeographical stuff of the Crusco papers and how they were saying, yeah, this is a pattern seen in other species. 
but it's also a pattern that has been overridden with other species as well when yeah. additional work has been done. It's a sort of fascinating, were... like, taxonomy, ongoing taxonomy, uh, phylogenetic work. It's so difficult to get right. Because it's, it's, I mean, number one, it's constantly changing. And number two, it's so, you know, it's, it's shown it's very sensitive to differences in methods. Because you don't have, oh, and then just even getting into the whole thing of what even is a species, I'm not even going there. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, they pulled at your biogeographical heartstrings. They did, they did. But, I mean, at least there are counter biogeographical <laughs> heartstrings yeah. and natural history justifications for it too. Yeah. Because I'm providing that context goes a long way for backing up what can appear to be quite abstract genetic results. Yeah. So, um, should we get onto the sort of indigo conservation element? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So indigo snakes, uh, they are protected in america they're on the endangered species act in the u.s um although the iucn actually classifies them as least concern but the united states giving them their own protection um and they were in mississippi and alabama but they've been extirpated there or so they think that's most likely um but there's this big reintroduction program and um, they're being released into the Conecuh national forest of south central alabama and the Ap- Apalachicola, Apalachicola bluffs. Apple- is that how you say that? Apalachicola <laughs> can't be. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. Where does it say this? Uh, oh god, I don't know if I can find it now. But uh, I can't help with my Ap- pronunciation Ap- if I can't see the. Okay. Word. Anyway, Apalachicola <laughs> bluffs and ravines reserve in the Florida Panhandle. Um, yeah, and so there was a big discussion prior to the Crisco papers initially Apple- coming Chicola. out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> apple and chicola. That's got to be that great. Is that rude, is great. That anyway. rolls off the tongue. That's wonderful. Yeah, it does. That's how all words should be. So, um, yeah, when the preliminary results of Crisco et al. were presented to sort of conservation planners for indigo snakes, they sort of decided, they elected to sort of just not ignore them, but they were just like, meh, you know, whatever. If this is the case, then, you know, in the north and south, the, there are populations which are separate where we're re-releasing snakes. Um, it's sort of, you know, whatever, we can just let them go. And it doesn't matter which sort of population or potentially species they're from. Mm. They decided it was more important that the ones they were actually releasing had similar ecological traits. So, for example, they were from a similar latitude because there's evidence that snakes from more northern climes, indigo snakes, use tortoise burrows as hibernacular and it's sort of essential to their survival that they do that. Otherwise, they won't survive cold winters. And so they kind of thought, well, that's probably one of the most important things that they're actually sort of behaviorally going to be adapted and suitable for the region we release them in, more than them being, you know, the exact right genetic. But um, as it turns out, if this paper is to be believed, this preprint, then uh, it didn't matter anyway because they're more or less all one. <laughs> yeah, but if anything, that's still you still continue picking things based on uh, what they're used to in terms of 
ecology and you can almost forget about the mitochondrial differences um, because you're just yeah. sort of playing into an already going on wide, widespread gene flow. Yeah. So it's yeah. not going mean... to make that much of a difference. Yeah, I do. I I don't know. I kind of like, I partly agree. I mean, if they could have had access to ones that were actually, you know, closer, maybe it would have been better to do. Um, I, but well, it sounds like they're probably yeah, already started. Yeah, I think started. it probably would be, but at some point, it, it is, it's weighing up the differences and the difficulties. You can, yeah. <laughs> if it's going to be so difficult to do that, that you're not going to be able to uh, reintroduce and keep these populations healthy. You yeah. know, it's all it's all weighing up the options, isn't it? Yeah, and at at some point you've just got to think, all right, we need a giant black snake that's going to eat everything and perform a function in an ecosystem. Yeah, <laughs> just get it out there, get one of them out there. It doesn't matter that much; they're going to do the job. Yeah, well, that might. I mean, I suppose that's the other argument against it, isn't it? Is less thinking about uh, phylogenetic stuff and more about ecological function. Yeah, and using it as a proxy for extirpated indigo species, regardless of what they were. But I mean, if you had the choice, you'd always go with the one that was most yeah. <laughs> most similar, yeah. if uh, definitely the convenience and cost were the same. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, especially as we've just been discussing for ages, there's so much stuff that we don't really understand. No, <laughs> like to just start releasing like any old thing is probably. I mean, it could have complications that we can't even begin to comprehend. Yeah, you're playing with fire. I mean, you just have to Damn. look in Florida to know that. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that. That non-peer-reviewed paper, I think it's important to say again. So, um, yeah, it hasn't been peer-reviewed by experts, although lots of experts have written it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots of experts have written it. There's some big names on that paper. It may, if it goes to Crisco for review, I'm pretty sure it will. Nah, I'm sure. I no, I don't think so. No, that's what, I would like to think that... Probably like, oh, okay. Yeah, I... I don't know. That's kind I, of the way. That's the way science it didn't, work. Anyway. It didn't read me like right. it reads anything like a grudge match sort of thing. It didn't sound like it was getting no. into, um, you know, these sort of horrible fights that can occur in uh, peer review. I presume that everybody's all relatively on point to just doing the best. Best. These are sort of conservation motivated things. So usually people are going to be on the same page that they just want what's best for the species and the environment i'd hope yeah i think you're right about that so uh yeah paper dos yeah paper two uh, by goetz godwin hoffman antonio and steen published in 2018 in Logica. Eastern indigo snakes exhibit an innate response to PIT5% and an ontogenetic shift in their response to mouse scent. Ooh. <laughs> Wowee. Yeah. Uh, did you say published in Herpetologica? Herpetologica, absolutely. Herpetologica, fun to say, fun to read. So, um, yeah. We're talking about eastern indigo snakes again. We, we've sort of done a fair amount of background on those. And um, as I think I mentioned a minute ago, they're known for eating loads of stuff. 
Oh, they love it. Pretty much any animal that they can fit in their mouth, they would eat. But qualitative reports suggest they eat more snakes than anything else. And so despite the fact they'll eat virtually anything, snakes are their favourite, it would appear. Which fits Um, nicely into their name, being King of Oak Woodland. Because a lot of snakes that eat other snakes have king in their name, don't they? Like, you king snakes and you king cobras. And are there any others? Off the top of my head? Nope, not that I can think of. No, I don't. I can't think of any. I'm I sure there are that are buried in the Latin somewhere, like dry mm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they had uh, well the the reintroduction method that well the reintroduction program that we were just discussing. That's where these snakes came from. So they were babies at the Orion Center for Indigo Conservation, and these were actually baby indigo snakes that were scheduled to be released as part of the reintroduction program or they were going to go into the breeding program so these are snakes which are contributing not only to science but also for conservation so i think you know big respect to these snakes double sort of double threats despite being obviously not responsible for their own actions they've done very well they're doing they're doing good work (laughs) and uh yeah so the idea of this paper was well so there's a method in snake ecological research where you can try and decide how much snakes like things to eat based on how they behave when they smell them. And when I say smell them, I mean use their tongue to get a little taste for them. And uh, what they did in this paper was they used like lingual characteristics, so how much tongue flicking the snake was doing, and also how much biting the snake was doing when it smelled a cotton bud with different scents on it. And um, yeah, you assume that the response to this cotton bud with a smell on it is a measure of how interested the snake is in that smell. And secondly, um, if it reacts more strongly to one smell than another smell, then you can assume that the snake is differentiating between those two smells and behaving accordingly. So for example, if you put the smell of some sweet potato fries on a cotton swab and put it in front of me I'd probably be like licking my lips and stuff <laughs> and then, but if you just put a thing of you know cabbage I'd probably be licking my lips a bit but less so you'd know that I preferred sweet potato fries to cabbage and then if you put deionized water on a swab and put it in front of me you'd just like it is, I you'd, wouldn't. you'd bite the cotton <laughs> you'd, you'd fight so thirsty <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I probably wouldn't do it yeah I uh, in actual fact Ben as you well know I wouldn't react to that smell okay <laughs> I would just be like, you know, whatever, because water doesn't really have a smell to me. I don't know if anyone else can smell water, but yeah. Um, yeah, so that's what they did. They put these smells on cotton buds, they waved them around in front of the snakes, and they measured how excited or not the snakes got. Mm. And and that was kind of split into these three different experiments. The first of which was, do these adorable little baby snakes differentiate different smells and act differently when they smell them? So they had water for control. Uh, they had a rat snake smell, a cotton mouth smell, which is, as we've talked about before... Copperhead, wasn't it? Was it copperhead? I think it was copperhead. Cotton mouths come out uh, used later on. Cotton mouths come out later on. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, good catch, man. Yeah, copperheads and a mouse. So yeah, four, four smells, water, rat snake, copperhead, and a mouse. And that was their first experiment with babies. And then they did the same experiment a year later on their snakes which had been raised in captivity to see if their preferences for prey had changed um 
And then finally, their last one was they tested to see if there was a preference. Well, it's kind of, it's a bit of a spoiler alert in the methods. But um, yeah, they basically found that they liked the smell of snakes and one snake in particular. And that led them to do another experiment, which was which pit viper smell do they like the best out of copperheads, pygmy rattlesnakes, cotton mouths. And that's it. Those yeah, three, those three. Yeah. 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 Um, which is such a cool experiment. Yeah. It's so, it's so fun. Um, yeah. And the results were pretty conclusive. Shall I carry on or do you want to weigh in? Um, yeah, I think what's what's worth mentioning is experiment one and two, uh, sorry, one and three, they're sort of new hatchlings, so they're completely or nearly completely naive to uh, any sort of prey. That's the whole point of using yes. hatchlings, is it's they're trying to get this innate preference for prey. Whereas the problem with experiment two was that because it's a year later, they had been fed stuff in the meantime, and over that time they had been fed mostly mice, but a little bit of quail and a tiny bit of fish. So just have that in the back of your head as we're going through the results, I guess. <laughs> mm, yeah. And the babies had eaten one mouse and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, is... Yeah, I can understand them doing that because having a baby snake that's never eaten and then doing trials on it, it's a bit tiring for them. Yeah. Like, it's not very nice. Yeah. No, I wouldn't want to do a load of strength. Yeah, I wouldn't personally want to do a load of trials if all I had to eat was yolk. I'd be, I'd be tired. <laughs> Depends how much yolk it was, though. Mm, yeah, that's I mean, what if you just seen... got given a tub of mayonnaise? <laughs> you've seen how much yolk I can eat. <laughs> Man loves his uh, eggs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't mess about with the album, though. Just, just the yolk. Um, Reverse meringue. Anyway. <laughs> absurd so yeah um what happened basically as it turns out eastern indigo snakes as the sort of not anecdotal but quantitative qualitative results suggested basically people have just seen them eating more snakes in a while um as that suggested they actually prefer the smell of snakes and specifically they like the smell of copperheads uh they also like rat snake but not as but much they <laughs> Yeah, copperheads are definitely their favourite out of copperheads, mice and rats, snakes. Um, but yeah, mice, you know, they liked the smell of mice. They weren't sort of averse to it. They'd have a nibble on a mouse, but it was copperheads that really got them going. Um, so that was interesting. They really liked the smell of copperheads, which is cool. I mean, I really like that because if you were going to be a snake-eating snake, what would be the easiest snake to find? It would be the one that just sits around in the same place all the time being an ambush predator, wouldn't it? Be easiest to find it based on its smell and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, and me, what's its like... defense? Not do anything. <laughs> yeah, its defense is to like open its mouth and wiggle around and play dead. Like if you, you know, that's not going to deter you if you're a blooming indigo snake, is it? Well, I don't know if you played dead, but um, yeah. And then so following on from that trial, because they liked the copperheads so so much, they were delicious. Um, like I said, they put them with two other pit vipers, the pygmy rattlesnakes and the cottonmouths. And um, what they found is that the snakes liked eating all of the pit vipers, basically. They liked them all better than water, but there wasn't a difference <laughs> in which <laughs> Just loved pit them viper vipers. smell they liked best. Didn't care what type yeah. of viper it was. Yeah. yeah. Just liked them. Yeah. I can, I, can, I can appreciate that as a sort of strategy. Um, 
Yeah, so they just like the smell of pit vipers. So that kind of suggests that all pit vipers share a common odour. <laughs> you Which maybe, is... or the... Or they can recognise all the individual yeah, odours. and they like them all equally. Wow. Statistically yeah, equally. Yeah, Statistically equally. Um, yeah, so that was cool. And then the last thing they did was um, they got those snakes that had aged a year. That as as you said, Ben, they'd been feeding mice predominantly, as well as a bit of fish and the odd little quail. Um, and they tested those to see which they liked best out of copperhead, rat snake, and mouse, same as they did to the babies initially. And what they found is that they liked the mouse scent a bit more than they had when they were babies. Mm. Um, they still preferred the pit viper. Not significantly so, right? Yeah, but now mouse was, mice were just like way better. And so, as you said, that it presents a pretty awkward finding because the snakes have been conditioned to eat mice for the majority of their diet. So nowadays, whereas when they're babies, they were like a mouse. That's kind of like food. I've had one of those. Now they're like, whoa, I've been eating those things for a year. They're delicious. It must be dinner time. They get all excited. It could be that. Or it could be the fact that actually, because of the fact that they've grown up, they've gone through an ontogenetic change and they now prefer mice because that's how their diet would progress in the wild. Um, which, you know, that has some credence to it because when you're a teeny tiny baby snake to catch any, I mean, they're probably not that small when they're babies, but um, they're going to be limited by their size. They're not going to be able to sort of eat mm. the biggest mice. And eating, when eating adults, snakes are quite easy because they haven't got any legs to get in the way, so you can just... Yeah. It's like spaghetti. Like spaghetti. Job done. Yeah. But um, yeah, it could be that their their prey preference actually changes as sort of mice become more easily available and, you know, a more practical meal. Yeah. And it's certainly uh, something we see in other reptile species, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I think a vast majority of snakes probably go through a significant ontogenetic dietary shift. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Just because of the practicality of it, they start off small and then they get big. Like we said it, I've said it before on the podcast, you know, when I was a baby, I mostly ate blended up vegetables and now I eat all sorts of stuff. <laughs> as, as well as blended up vegetables. Oh, don't get me wrong. You know, I've still got a place for blended up vegetables. One meal a day now rather than three. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <clears throat> something else they mentioned in this paper, which um, I don't know. So they say that Eating snakes greatly reduces prey handling time. So prey handling time is the time that the animal is like fiddling around trying to get the animal in its mouth after they've sort of killed it mm. or or even just sort of like, I don't know if prey handling time is just the handling after death or whether it's the actual killing of, I think it might be a bit of both. I think it's the whole thing, isn't it? it it's from it's from initial bite to the very end. Right. That's what, okay, or so at that least that's ass- what I would, I would term yeah, prey handling. That was also my, yeah, that was my assumption. So, um, I don't actually necessarily think that's correct. Like, I think that if you're catching and killing a snake, uh, it's going to take... Because these are constrictors, right? Or are they just gobble things? Well, they were saying that they just bite the heads of the snake and kill them like that. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Because I know that, like, in other animals, in other snakes, when they're killing and eating a reptile, it takes a lot longer. Because if you constrict a mouse, that thing's going to perish yeah. really fast. Because they don't do well with that oxygen. Whereas well, we... lizards and snakes can hold their breath for ages and they can survive on way less oxygen. Their metabolisms are different. Yeah, that was one of the things we mentioned all the way back in the, the boa episode was how they were holding their prey for way longer. And one of the hypothesized reasons for that was because it's developed 
to deal with reptile prey. So they're holding it for much longer, even though the mammal's already dead. Yeah. You know, because they're used to, used to slower dying reptiles. Just going massively overboard. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was worth mentioning. Quite an interesting point. Uh, maybe they're right then if they're just smashing up the head and then swallowing them. Uh, I remember reading they they said they went for the went for the head, um, went for the face. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because that's also the most dangerous um, part of a snake if you're eating a venomous viper. Yeah, yeah. Um, which also draws an interesting thing about whether indigos are somewhat resistant to the venoms of these vipers. Do they know whether or not king cobras are resistant to venoms? Not that I know of. No. But then... I've, I mean, I've seen videos of them, of pit vipers trying to gnaw on a king cobra and just failing to break the scales. <laughs> so Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean... Uh, they, they are a bit sort of tank-like in that respect. Yeah, I throughout reading for this, I just kept on seeing similarities between indigo snakes and king cobras. Mm. They're basically doing almost the same thing, except one's doing it with venom and one's doing it without. Yeah. Well, unless um, they do have some sort of rear-fanged venom going on there. But uh, yeah, I can't but imagine it's particularly that, potent. No, and I, as you just said, like getting venom through reptile skin isn't necessarily the easiest thing i don't know if i don't know if having rear fangs and having a good chomp maybe maybe anyway uh, probably just... they're pretty you know they're gonna have a powerful bite it's true it's true uh yeah but so <clears throat> yeah this paper this the findings of this paper have quite interesting well at least one interesting sort of conservation implication which is um they're, they're having these baby snakes born in captivity and they're raising them up on this uh, slightly unnatural diet, it would seem. And um, then they're releasing them into the wild to go and, you know, repopulate an area. Um, is there a chance that the fact that you've given these snakes an unnatural diet will either sort of create a suite of maladapted snakes or um, influence sort of their ecological function once they're released yeah they just go out and they leave all the snakes all the vipers alone and just decimate the mammal population they just go yeah. after very specific type of mice yeah <laughs> um it yeah, i mean who knows really is the answer to that yeah. i guess like you'd have to you'd have to do a study comparing the diet composition of wild versus introduced snakes which would be very difficult very cool anyway to do, because though. you'd need to get yeah, but then it would be awesome, don't get me wrong. But you'd need very, you'd also need data on sort of like prey abundancies because if they're comparing yes. introduced, unless you're introducing snakes to an area where there are existing like true wild snakes, which in this case they're actually not, um, you would have to take into account the fact that they're probably encountering different prey as they're in different yeah. places as well. Yeah, that was a good thing with, with this study is it gets around the problem of trying to work out sort of preference and yeah. having the, the abundance influence the preference because you've just gone, mm. hey, do you like this smell? As opposed to we don't we've got to first work out what they came in contact with. Yeah. 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 And the other thing it got me thinking about was that um snakes in captivity for lots and lots and lots of generations <clears throat> they're kind of like inadvertently selected for 
sort of rodent eating because it's convenient. I don't, I don't think it's inadvertent at all, is it? Well, no. There's well, a lot of selection, artificial selection going in to captive breeding of all sorts of snakes. I think on the count, on the part of most people, it, I mean, on the in the hands of the individual, sometimes it's probably advertent to be fair, and people allow. But then they just survive if they eat rodents, and they don't if they won't, because uh, people have limited capacity to get other foods. So yeah, um, which kind of suggests that if you're going to ever use animals which have been propagated captively by individuals then it might be wise to take into account that they need to replicate wild prey and keep replicating wild prey, possibly, for generations. Or I guess you could always just select backwards again for a preference for native prey. Well, selecting backwards can be very difficult. And what's... I mean, that's the sort of good thing about these results, is it does look like the preference for vipers and stuff is an innate thing. It's not learned. It seems like they've hmm. sort of adapted off it maybe although we can't actually confirm that or not but in that sense if it's innate it's going to be harder to get rid of perhaps because the plasticity will be relaxing any selection right if they can just Mm. flexibly move the mammals without having to mm, yeah it's all a balance between selection and plasticity there and I wonder if they're plastic enough to forget you know, to not have uh, yeah. be selected. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the thing is as well, like as at least in the case of indigo snakes, you can see from the um, the figures in this that it's not they don't even when they're brand new they don't not like mice they just prefer snakes. Mm. So in this case, yeah, maybe you're right and actually, just yeah, they just like to eat. Yeah. <clears throat> but C- cool. Well, yeah, cool. and um, yeah, really interesting. I liked this. I just liked it all. I like the methodology. I like the, I like the really clear, nice results. Everything made sense yep. as predicted. They just like eating snakes. Clear and crisp, especially, especially delicious pit vipers. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I like pit vipers a lot. Why do things have to eat them? <laughs> That's why I hate king cobras. <laughs> hey man, pit vipers eat cool stuff too. <laughs> they do. They eat adorable geckos. And little Kalulas. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, so, um, should we go on to the fame? The world famous. The most highly anticipated segment of any podcast describing a new species of Squamate. Or... Not even squat, just. No, just vertebrate. Thing that crawls. Yeah, thing that crawls. Amphibian. This is an amphibian. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Krauss 2013, a new species of Hylophorbus and Neuromycharidae from Papua New Guinea, Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. It's quite an old one, actually, 2013. Yeah, but we picked it because it's got a hilarious face. It does have a good face, yeah. No, it's, it's 2018. It's 2018. You've been you've been duped by my... Uh, by, um, you do this, don't Mendeley's, you? You things wrong. Mendeley's so, auto thing. Just, it was, it's so a 2018. Ben has this habit 
Ben has this habit of trying to make me look foolish on the podcast, and he's done it again. Don't listen to what he says. He blames Mendeley. Mendeley, you know, Mendeley isn't conscious. No, no. I bet you it says it's in current herpetology as well, doesn't it? It's not. No, mine says Proceedings of the Biological yeah. Society of Washington. I put it in Mendeley. I did a little search for the DOI, and it came up with everything's correct apart from the year and current biology. <laughs> That's just terrible. Well, it's a new paper, then. It is new. It's absolutely new. I was wrong. Yes. Fresh, fresh off of the press. So, <laughs> yeah, basically, um, there was initially thought to only be one species of this genus in Papua, um, but now... There are nine. This is the 10th, I think. And there might even be as many as 24 eventually when everything's worked out taxonomically and uh, people have done a bit more research. And um, this genus of frogs called Hilophorbus, they're pretty much just filthy leaf leaf litter dwellers, aren't they? Yeah. They come out at night, creep around on the leaves. Um, they Sometimes they crawl from under the top layer of leaves. They stay hidden or they sit atop them. But, um, yeah, this new species has never been heard calling, which is unusual. Quite often frog descriptions come with a call, mm. but uh, not in this case. Well, it's found, it, was, it was found in amongst <coughs> other museum specimens, was it not? As it was collected it was prior and then, uh, and then reviewed and discovered, which right. is quite often the case, it seems. Because yeah. it seems to be yeah. easier to collect these animals than it is to describe them. Yeah. Because that does take some yeah. serious work. It does, it does, it does. And that's where there's like whole suites of amphibians waiting to be described from places like Madagascar. Yeah. Or um, Papua New Guinea. He- yeah. And anywhere else with some sort of limestone cast landscape. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this new species. I've got written here the actual etymology, but I haven't got the actual name written down. What do you call it? Um, Trophryne Bigfordy? Bigfordy? What? No. Well, then what do you... What? Huh? Huh? Hylophorbus... Atrifasciatus? What? Are we looking at different frogs? <laughs> oh my god, we're not, are Oh, we? this is great. What have you got? I've got a new species of Hylophorbus from Papua New Guinea. Well, oh my gosh, what has gone... Something's gone horribly wrong here. <laughs> I have a new, I have uh, a new species of Chorophrydae from Papua New Guinea. <laughs> no! I must have just done a search and clicked on the wrong paper. No, no, I tell you what, it's because it's wrong in my Mendeley. Oh, every, okay, every, so just... every word is correct, apart from... There must be another paper published in Current Biology, which is almost identical to this paper in every way. So who's got the wrong one? Well, I don't know. It depends on <laughs> what... what... <laughs> oh mate, like that mine, doesn't matter. Mine, at this I've point. got the wrong one. Mine's a current herpetology, mate. Mine's a so yeah. Okay, so my one I'm reading is actually in current herpetology. I thought it was from the Washington bit. It says here proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. Okay, and by crap. What you... So the title's right. What does your frog look like? The... 
my frog is like it's a cool little dude it's a sort of orange on the sides yellow in the middle black on top um little eyes yeah it's just sort of it's got a dark stripe and that's what the name means the name means um the etymology is masculine compound latin adjective meaning having a black band well because the frog has a black band we should do that one then because my one's just got a black and white picture and it's got a funny nose (laughs) mate i think this is i think this misunderstanding is golden podcasting to be honest (laughs) (laughs) well okay then we have two species of the bi-week uh mine's just a little frog from papua new guinea (laughs) which has a hilarious nose (laughs) um it's a color of mix of browns and blacks well, your one sounds lame compared to mine. Yeah, but mine you haven't seen its hilarious nose. <laughs> My God, what a mess! What a mess! <laughs> oh, well, excellent. Well, yeah. So, um, yeah, Fred Krauss has been busy publishing frogs, confusing everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the titles also, are near identical. That's amazing. Yeah, he also wrote the book on invasive reptiles and amphibians. Yes, very good. Yes, he did. Um, which I refer to often, being as I'm studying an introduced species of snake. Um, but yeah, so there's two frogs, both from Papua New Guinea, presumably, <laughs> yeah. One's called, what's your one called? Uh, Churiofrine Bickfordi. Bickfordi. Okay, that's a good name. Is Bickford someone's name? Yeah. Your one's got a lame name compared to mine. Mine's called Having a Black Band. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Yeah. Hylophorbus atrifasciatus. Oh, that's cool. So, what's your one called? I want to have a look at it. Um, you you can't find any pictures for it. Um, no. apart from in the paper. Oh. Um, I will send you the link to the paper. <laughs> and while you do that, I will carry on talking about my species ecology. Uh. They're very small. They only get to 22 millimetres long and weigh 1.2 grams. They're teeny tiny. And they're from primary lowland and low montane forest from 360 to 850 metres elevation. They're like rattan palms. Presumably the nice leaves are fun to hide under. And um, Well, if you think, oh boy, those are some good natural history notes. You want to hear these natural history notes? Yeah, go on. The type locality was categorised as High Natural Disturbance Lowland Forest in the field notes of D. Bigfoot. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's all we know. <laughs> this poor little guy. He's hardly had anything done. <laughs> he's so he's so new on the block. Doesn't even have a colour <laughs> photograph. <laughs> Aww. Right. Uh, okay, I'm going to have a look at your frog. Yeah, mine's got a little bit more even, actually. Even more. Um, Yeah, like I said, they're active on the leaf litter at night along ridgetops, but they do appear to be uncommon, um, judging by the fact that they weren't heard calling and there was a rarity at which they were observed. So actually, this one one was collected, I think, by the sounds of it, by Krauss, um, whereas yours was museum specimen. Mm. Another reason mine's better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right. It seems it seems to be suggested there's a lot more to find going on with these guys, these little fossorial, funny-nosed frogs, yeah. which is to be expected, them being fossorial. Uh, quite small. Ben, what's going on here? Oh, I know what's happened. 
about 20 millimeters SVL. Yeah? You've discovered the... uh... I've discovered the issue. I went to the website of the right paper. Yeah. Yeah, that you sent originally. Yeah. I took the DOI. Yeah. I took the DOI. The DOI's wrong, isn't it? The DOI's wrong on the website. Yeah, I thought so, because um, that's how I did the Mendeley thing. I searched a DOI to fill in the gaps, and that's why it's come up with all the 2013 Krauss paper and not the 2018 paper. So... Well, why is current herpetology... Well, I mean, it must be inadvertent that they're linking to... Oh, it's so weirdly confusing, man. Yeah, I don't understand how that's. Well, I guess the the happens because the the, the, the link the link is the same DOI as the DOI that gives you the wrong results, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> how strange. Highly confusing. Current herpetology's made a little bit of a mistake there on their online listings. Well, someone I don't know who's made the mistake. Oh, it's on Bio One, so maybe it was Bio One that did yeah. it. Yeah. Although I found it in two different places and had the same results, so. But I mean, both. Bo- Wait, but both the journals are on Bio One, are they not? They're both the same journal. It's all current hepatology. So it's not the proceedings the... of the Biological Society no. in Washington. I don't know where that came from, mate. That's completely different again. <laughs> oh my day! Well, I tell you where <laughs> that comes crazy. from. It comes from the title of the paper. It's on the paper. That's on the piece of paper in front of me. That's not wrong. <laughs> That's written here. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, that's enough confusion for one day for me. <laughs> well. <laughs> have you, have uh, you managed yeah, to find so a picture of this probably... hilarious frog? I can't find it. I don't know where it is. Look, I, I, Dude, I'm going to fix this. I can't this. see it. I'm going to fix Can you share your screen with me on Skype or something? Oh, yeah, that will work. It works a treat. That wasn't sarcastic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know when you're so often cutting me down with your sarcasm. Oh, <laughs> Is that sharing? I don't know how to... Yeah, I'm just trying to embiggen it. Oh, I see you. Oh, Inception, Ben. Right. Okay, let's hide the chat. I don't need the chat anymore. Oh, oh, weird. It looks like a shark. It looks like a dogfish. Dogfish frog. Oh, that's hideous. We Mate, this was definitely a good one to pick. <laughs> My one was sort of... It was cool, but it didn't look like that. I mean, what's it eating? Spaghetti. <laughs> what's it eating? Why has it got a face like that? Is it for burrowing? <laughs> yeah, it's a fossorial frog. Wow. Oh, wow. It's, it's just a little like a torpedo that dwelling. goes underground. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. Big fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, your one's better. See, just... you. But look at the... Look. Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. Why is it saying that? There's a real DOI right here. Uh-huh. Oh, so yours actually was in Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. Yes. Ah, I see you pasting the real DOI in there, keeping it in Mendeley. Yep, good, keeping good it record keeping. Correcting this horrible mistake, which I have no idea how that occurred. <laughs> it's fun watching your screen. Right, I'm going to stop now, though, because... Uh... I need my own screen. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, so basically two new species. A double whammy species of the bi-week. Oh, man, if you can actually understand, you can handle. Yeah, if you can actually sort of actually unpick what the hell me and Ben were rambling about and work out where one species begins and one ends, you're doing better than I am. Um, yeah, that was fun. One with a, a, some sort of stripe and the other with a hilarious nose. That's all you really need to yeah. know. Yeah. Now, 
let's do some i think that's it isn't it let's read some yeah i'm corrections and other <laughs> I'm bits done. And bobs. my brain's my brain's done after that mess yeah man. honestly mate i think i'm gonna it started heavy with this. genetics and it finished with a complete <laughs> debacle of species of the bi-week yeah, it, we, we yeah, you went in on the genetics on the first paper. It was really good. It was like you know, get, get the detail in there, and then we had a little bit more light-hearted one with snakes smelling, and then we had the most confused episode ever. I don't know. I think it's yeah. Um. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> I've got a correction. It's not really a correction. It's just some more facts. So Joshua Udin, who is our etymology correspondent, um, it's not an official title, but he's uh, making a habit of telling us cool stuff about etymology. And um, we talked about Anolis Onca um, in not not the last episode, but the one before. Um, oh, yes. The Annals one. Yes. And we were talking about what is Onca. And we were saying it was to do with big cats. Well, that was stuff. the only... I mean, that was the only way I I had heard of it, yeah. Yeah. And um, same here. We were talking about it. We agreed, which is always dangerous when we're both wrong in the same way. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> yeah, we weren't like, you know, this is this, whatever. But apparently Onka actually refers to light, brightness, vision, or secondarily, a gold colour. And um, the confusion arises from unrelated nouns in the historical chain of use. Several different cats are described as Onka and also a unit of measurement. Uh, the names of the lynx and the panther Onka share... I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right, because it's got a little squiggle underneath the C. Onsa? Share etymological yeah, roots. Yeah, so is it Onsa? I guess. Yeah, I don't know. We'll say, I'm going to keep saying Onka, because I've started that way. And that's what the uh, species epithet of the anole is. Anyway, they share etymological roots, which could refer to their night vision, in the case of the cats, or their gold colour. And before ounce came to be a unit of measurement, it referred specifically to a gold coin. See, that makes so much um, more sense, because jaguars are kind of gold-like. Yes, it makes a million Do more sense. Do they have and golden cool. eyes? Maybe they have golden eyes shine as well. Uh, That'd be cool. I don't know. I'm talking about cats. Most, Sorry, carry don't on. Most predators... Don't most... Re- I can't remember if most predatory cats have green or red. Is it... No, it's gold, isn't it? Is it gold? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, onka. Yeah. It means to shine bright. To see. In... Full... Yeah proto-indo-european or whatever that means that's a bit beyond me and and anyway so what it means is the fact that these lizards live on the beach could be that there's gold in the sand or more likely they have a golden colored dewlap and um yeah that was all from joshua See, that Rudin. makes so really much more sense that's, yeah literally i'm so happy that there's a good explanation for that same and here i feel the like the common name will just have to remain the bulky adult the bulky anole. <laughs> Not the golden anole or something like that. Yeah, the beach anole. Chubby uh, anole. So yeah, that that's the only correction I've got this time. Did you see any others? Uh, no, and in fact I'd forgotten cool. that I saw that one. So, any other business? Don't think so. No, I went I went heavy in the reading for the <laughs> for the first paper. I don't have any sort of bonus bits to. No. Go into. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. It's good. Um, so, yeah, uh, we've still got t-shirts for sale. We've had really good uptake on the t-shirts. Yeah. Um, if you would like, yeah, send us photos on Facebook of you wearing your t-shirt. That would be cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so if you want to get a t-shirt, you can get them 
from redbubble.com slash people slash herp highlights. Um, if you want to donate and help us run the podcast, we'd be very grateful. Uh, we've got a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash herp highlights. You can get in touch with us on facebook.com slash herp highlights. I'm detecting Twitter. a pattern. Yeah, Twitter at herp highlights. Ooh. And is that it? Oh yeah, herphighlights at gmail.com <laughs> if you're old smokes. fashioned. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> yeah, God, good grief. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, herp highlights. We're called we're actually called herpetological highlights, <clears throat> but it's too long to have an a web address. Mm. But hey. Good stuff. Yeah, cool. Um yeah. In, I guess thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to episode... Oh, what episode is 28. it? 28. 28, Jesus. Yeah. Okay, let's just carry on, that's fine. We can just have that little bit. No, let's start again. <laughs> well, now you okay. drew attention to it. You can't have it. You could have just gone. <laughs> Damn. <laughs>